Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, submissions are now in full swing. We're off to a great start with some delightfully disturbing yarns already oozing their way into our hearts. But our editors are oh so hungry, downright insatiable, really, and if they don't get their fill of horrifying fiction, I'm a little nervous about what they'll start snacking on next. So please. Children of the night, if you've got any chilling tales scuttling up your sleeves, why not release them out into the world and into the ears of other listeners? So far, Pete's got his fingers crossed for some folky witch tales, while Meredith has been pining to explore a quiet, atmospheric haunted house. And I don't think Seth's ever said no to a good piece of nautical horror. Let's not disappoint them, shall we? While we're on the hunt for some fresh stories, this seems like the perfect time to put out a line for a few new voices to bring them to life, too. Specifically, we're looking to add a few new females to our roster of narrators. If you'd like to use your vocal talents to help spread the madness, all you need is a microphone and a quiet recording space. Send us a short sample of your reading to editor at talestoterrify.com and we'll get back to you. I'd love to hear your voices, children of the night. Speaking of short samples, our stop this week is a brief one. This week takes us into the heart of the city of Edmonton, the capital of the province of Alberta. Nestled in the historic Highlands district, the Gibbard Block has seen a lot of change in more than a hundred years of life. Built in 1913 as a luxury apartment building, it was a quaint and classy place to stay in a desirable part of town. And the caretaker and his wife were fortunate enough to have their own apartment on the top floor. There was always plenty of work for the caretaker to do, though. Typical things like fixing burnt lights, squeaky stairs, or unclogging the plumbing. He enjoyed his work for the most part. There was something satisfying about applying his handyman skills to help the other residents. And most of the tenants were respectful and appreciative, 
even if they could be a little demanding from time to time. His wife helped out where she could, too. She was young and beautiful and full of energy, and she'd frequently visit with other tenants and lend a hand where she was able. But as time went on, the caretaker found his wife seemed to spend less and less time in their apartment or helping him, and more and more time in the other suites. While he worked his hands raw, keeping the place in good condition, his wife would be off somewhere, visiting and laughing and having a good time. She's laughing at me, he thought. While I'm off busting my ass, she just sits around with her friends, making fun of her poor, hard-working schmuck of a husband. And that led to deeper, darker thoughts still. What if she's cheating on me? What if she's warming someone else's bed while I'm hunched over a drain or stoking the furnace? The two, unsurprisingly, began to fight. He would get back to the apartment after a long day of work, sore and grimy, and find her relaxed and looking fresh, and he hated her for it. One evening, after a particularly tough day, he got back to the apartment to find it empty, and was instantly furious. With every passing minute, the temperature of his already irrational rage continued to climb. So when she finally walked in the door, a wide smile from her day's visit still bright across her face, he broke. The darkness lapping at the shores of his sanity finally spilled over the dike and came flooding out in a flurry of violence. He chased her around the apartment, screaming, fists swinging, before finally cornering her in the bedroom. In a blind fit of insane rage, he struck her over and over until her cries turned to whimpers, then to silence. The sudden lack of sound hung thick in the air, broken only by his heavy breathing. He wiped his sweat-streaked face on his sleeve, ran a hand through his hair, then pulled the sheet from the bed. He wrapped it around her body, then bent down and grabbed her by the ankles and began to drag. He dragged her out of the bedroom, through the living room, and out into the hallway, then to the top of the staircase, and down. Thump, 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 thump. Her head banged off each stair on the way down to the basement. The caretaker kicked open the door to the furnace room, and dragged his wife's body across to the large black cast-iron furnace. The metal grate screamed as he swung it open, exposing the pitch-black maw inside. He shoveled coal into the chamber and stoked it until the flames grew bright and hot, and without a word or a hint of hesitation, he hefted his wife's corpse and shoved her into the hungry, flickering mouth of the furnace. That night, the apartment block was warm, unseasonably warm. The furnace ran at full blast all night and into the morning. But by the time the sun came up, there was little left in the stomach of the cast-iron beast but cinders. Cinders and a few subtle fragments of bone. It was those fragments that would eventually be discovered by other staff members and lead to a call to the police. The caretaker was eventually arrested and found guilty of murdering his wife. But the echoes of his deeds remained at the Gibbard block. The building was eventually taken over by the much-loved La Boheme restaurant and bed and breakfast. Visitors who stayed at La Boheme especially anyone put up in that upper-floor bedroom, would report having sheets torn off the bed in the middle of the night, and the lights flickering as if someone was flipping the switch back and forth. Sometimes, in the space between flickers, the silhouette of a woman would appear in the darkness, before vanishing as the light once again flooded the room. Most disturbing of all, though, 
was the sound, late at night, of a steady thump, 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 making its way slowly down the staircase to the basement. La Bohème closed its doors a couple of years ago after 37 years in business, but the building has recently been renovated to include a handful of trendy new restaurants below some fancy urban suites. And, luck would have it, at least one of those suites is available on Airbnb. Although, no word if that includes the infamous murder bedroom. If you're in Edmonton and you choose to spend the night there, I'd say keep your ears peeled for things that go thump in the night. Our first story for the evening comes from Nicholas T. Monastere. Nick was born and raised in Ohio, and he joined the Army in 2010. A paratrooper and hand-to-hand combative instructor, he deployed to Afghanistan in 2014 with the 82nd Airborne Division. After completing his service in 2015 and working in a factory for two years, he went on to work a wide variety of jobs all across the country, forever chasing stories and experiences worth talking about. Nick currently lives in Mexico with his girlfriend and two dogs, and he sincerely hopes you consider eating less animal products in the future. Children of the Night Join me for Nicholas T. Monastere's Harbingers, a Tales to Terrify original. The night was dark and full of stars. A cool breeze kissed our sweaty brows as we all looked up and waited for the world to end. A few hundred of us had gathered. People trickled in slowly, arriving in pairs and in groups. A soft orange glow illuminated the horizon to the south. It was a city burning. I probably should have felt something. It was my home, after all. My parents and my siblings were huddled several stories beneath the earth, somewhere back there, convinced the apocalypse could be ridden out inside an old bunker. At least they said that's where they were going, and that's where I like to believe they were. I didn't want them to die alone. I didn't want them to die without hope. Scientists agreed there wasn't any hope. But if hope brought them peace, I wanted them to believe in it until the very end. I wasn't worried, not anymore. Making peace with it had been the hardest part. I just wanted it to hurry up and happen already. A flash filled the sky and everyone gasped. Acceptance of the inevitable doesn't make it less frightening. The flash turned to a streak and burned out harmlessly overhead. A gentle murmur. Then we huddled a bit closer. Nobody wanted to be alone. That was a harbinger, someone said. The big one's close. People stating the obvious has been a pet peeve all my life. Even at the end, that hadn't changed. A hand slipped into mine. The end of life was only minutes away, but the sudden contact nearly made me scream. I jerked away and looked at who'd grabbed me. Her eyes were wide and her face was pale, but she forced a smile. I'm sorry, she said. I'm scared. I was worried she might be a threat. Then I realized it didn't really matter. I offered the best smile I could manage. Me too. I grabbed her hand. We looked at the sky. Several flashes back to back to back. A few of them burst into magnificent fireballs upon entering the atmosphere bright enough for you to read by. She squeezed my hand and leaned closer. I held her tightly. Just happen already. I killed my husband, she said. 
right after killing our daughter. I closed my eyes and hoped the big one would hit while I wasn't looking, but then I opened him. It was going to be the last thing I ever saw. Yeah? I said. Yeah. He was supposed to be the one who did it. We had a plan. He'd kill us both and then he'd kill himself. But when it came time to pull the trigger on her, he couldn't. She looked so peaceful. She was sleeping so quietly. We had to drug her. She wouldn't go to bed otherwise. I nodded. Another fireball tore across the sky and my chest tightened. People were crying. I was too. You know what I said to her as she was falling asleep? I told her it was all just a nightmare and that when she woke up she'd feel better. She was only four and the pills were starting to take hold. I think she believed me. She said, okay, mommy, before she drifted off. I cried. I didn't care about her kid or her trauma. I tried to pull her closer. I wanted comfort. One of them, a big one, must have made it to the ground. There was a bright flash on the horizon, then a low rumble. People fell down screaming and grabbing one another, but the sound died and the flash turned to a glow, and we were still alive and the sky was still falling. The dose was so high she would have died anyway. She was talking faster, but I wanted to be sure. I didn't want her to wake up. She was crying now, holding me, pleading for some sort of forgiveness. I didn't want her to be afraid, so I took the gun from Steve and put it to her chin and pulled the trigger before I could think about it. Her head... She cried harder. So did I. Stephen absolutely lost it. I was amazed anyone could cry so hard and still talk. He left the room and started walking through the house. Where's Madison? He sang it, like he was playing. But there was something hollow about his voice. Where's Madison? Is she in the bathroom? Nope. Hmm, I wonder where she could be. Harbingers dropped from the sky like embers. Some of them were orange. Others streaked down like green and blue lasers. They fizzled and cracked on their way down. I felt lighter, as though I were about to levitate, drawn to the big one's gravity. Hyperventilating, I put my face in the crook of her neck. I decided I didn't want her to see it. I told him I found her! She was screaming. Everyone was. A deafening boom cracked overhead, something breaking the sound barrier. I had to wash his blood off my face, she continued. Then I came here because I couldn't do it myself and there wasn't any more Ambien. I thought I could face it, but I'm scared. I'm so fucking scared. She shook against me and clutched my back. I hope they know I'm sorry. I heard it, the big one. The sky fell apart and everyone screamed. It struck land. No hope. I squeezed my eyes shut and pulled her against me. I screamed, I hope! That was Nicholas T. Monastere's Harbingers, as read by Alex Jennings. Alex Jennings is a teacher, author, and performer living in New Orleans. His writing has appeared in Podcastle, The Podunk Review, Obsidian Lit, The Locus Award-winning Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia Butler, and in numerous anthologies including Stories for Chip, New Sons, Speculative Fiction by People of Color, and Spicy Slipstream Stories. His debut collection, Here I Come, and Other Stories, was released by Fight On Publications in 2012. He publishes pop culture reviews with Antenna Works and serves as MC and co-producer of Dogfish, a monthly literary reading series. He is a graduate of Clarion West 2003 and the University of New Orleans. He was born in Germany 
and raised in Botswana, Suriname, and Tunisia, as well as the United States. Find out more about Alex at alexjennings.net. Thank you, Alex. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story comes from Evan J. Peterson. Evan J. Peterson is a Clarion West writer and author of The Prep Diaries from Lethe Press, as well as the interactive fiction RPG Dragstar from Choice of Games. His other books include The Horror Poetry Chapbooks, Skin Job, and The Midnight Channel, and the Lambda Literary Award finalist anthology Ghosts in Gaslight, Monsters in Steam, Gay City 5. Evans' fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have appeared in Weird Tales, Boing Boing, The Stranger, The Rumpus, Best Gay Stories 2015, the Queer South Anthology, Unspeakable Horror 2, Queers Destroy Horror, Nightmare Magazine, Drawn to Marvel, Poems from the Comic Books, Arcana, the Tarot Poetry Anthology, and Aim for the Head, an anthology of zombie poetry. Evan was the founding creative editor, and then editor-in-chief, of Minor Arcana Press. Visit evanjpeterson.com to read more of his work. Listen with me, children of the night, to Evan J. Peterson's The Husband's Suit, a Tales to Terrify original. Gavin married a monster. Lisa assumed that Gavin was attracted to his husband because the husband was a monster. Gavin was like that. He's really good to me. He just doesn't socialize, Gavin told her over the phone. It's a monster thing. Lisa sat in pink yoga pants on a pink yoga mat in her basement bonus room while her best friend caught her up. That counted as grounding and relaxation, she supposed. Gavin could have the half hour she had set aside. As weird as Gavin was, he always seemed to soothe Lisa except for his god-awful taste in music. She didn't really know what he dressed like now, since he never sent pics, but he still listened to stuff that she wasn't even sure counted as music. Witches chanting over spacey bloops and clicks, bands with names like Mother, How May I Become Forever and a Day. Could you turn down the music? It's a little distracting. Yeah, no problem. The background music became softer through the phone, but Gavin left it on. How's James? 
She picked at her pedicure and flicked the pieces onto her mat rather than the new carpet. The polish was cheap. She would start bringing her own. James is the same as ever. Easy to get along with, loves his job. He's making video games at Mercury. Oh, and we're trying to get pregnant. Did you already move back to Seattle? Oh, yeah, sorry. It all happened really quickly. I'm sorry I haven't kept in touch. Grad school is like that. We didn't have a wedding ceremony. Well, we did, but it was just the two of us. I would have invited you if it was a big production. I landed a sweet job at Halsey Labs, and Hubby and I got a place out on Mercer Island. I got tired of swamping it in Florida, wanted to set down some roots. I mean, not literally. Hubby doesn't have roots. He has other things. When Lisa asked what his husband's name was, Gavin said, He doesn't have a name. Many monsters don't have names. You get used to it. Lisa suspected that Gavin made the whole thing up. She never really thought he'd marry anyone. Well, what does he look like? Her question didn't draw a quick response. She listened to the cackling and blooping in the background. Finally, Gavin answered, Beautiful, like nothing I've ever seen before. I hope you get to meet him. Why wouldn't I meet your husband, Gavin? Another pause. She noticed the music was no longer playing. She lay down in Savasana. People said it was the most difficult pose, but Lisa really never understood why. Through the phone, she heard something that sounded like little bells, and Gavin mumbled something, probably to the husband. Then into the phone, he said, He's shy. He thinks humans will be mean to him. But he married a human, didn't he? Yeah, but you know I'm a weirdo. He's kind of a misfit, too. Wanted to leave the swamp and see the world. His kind aren't supposed to do that. She sat up again, trying to use only her core muscles without her arms. When can I come see you? Hmm. Can you give us another month? I want to fix up the house. Just go over there. Like, bring them a pan of brownies or something, James told her. Lisa lay in his arms after a particularly satisfying round. For some reason, she hadn't expected trying to conceive to be so delicious. She'd pictured missionary position and fiddling with her smartphone at the same time, using the Radiant app to track sex and ovulation. She was almost 30 in between jobs. It made sense to have the first baby now and the second one before 35. Then she might finally go get her master's. Just drop by unannounced? She settled into James's arms and kissed the seam of his outer armpit. The dark hair stuck out in little filaments that tickled her lips. Sure, do that thing where you go out of your way to check on someone, but you're really gathering data. How weird can his husband possibly be? Lisa didn't like the idea, but her curiosity outstripped her hesitation. They had the address. James had been to Gavin's house already to drop off a chainsaw and some other landscaping equipment. Gavin received him on the porch with beers, but didn't invite James inside. Hubby's having a rough day. It's not a good time to meet him, Gavin told James, who repeated it to Lisa. She suspected James left something out. The way men say and do things together, they won't say or do in front of women. So Lisa drove out to the island in her little red Prius with the little red swiveling hula devil on the dashboard. As she pulled up the long and rain-soggy driveway to the house, she eased her foot off the gas pedal and said a little prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. The car crept along as the old Victorian funeral home slowly expanded in the windshield frame. It looked to be in pretty good shape, actually. Lisa had expected Gavin and his monster to live in some kind of dilapidated gothic money pit. Maybe the husband came from money? Lisa said the prayer to St. Michael again. She parked the car, took off her good pumps, and put on socks and sneakers. As she opened the car door, she could hear Gavin shouting inside the house. In response came a horrible sound, layering a high screech atop a deep groan like a rusty meat locker door slowly closing. Lisa paused and considered whether to knock on the front door or just turn around and get the hell out of there. But curiosity had her, and James wouldn't shut up for a week if she didn't follow through. As she approached the house, she heard Gavin say something that sounded like, Do not come apart while I am talking to you! She carried the tinfoil-covered Pyrex dish of brownies up to the porch and almost dropped it as a muscular black tentacle, inky and glistening and marbled with firecracker red veins, shattered through a window. After the window glass, the tentacle broke itself apart into a thousand black and red things that skittered across the wooden porch in all directions, and Lisa screamed and threw the brownie pan and ran for the car. She swiped all over her legs and feet, hoping that none of the little creatures got onto her. She flung the car door open and got in. As she struggled to get her safety belt on, Gavin came bounding down the porch stairs and knocked on her window. She clicked the automatic lock, and it chunked 
into place. What are you doing here? We were just having an argument. It's fine, Gavin shouted through the glass. His breath fogged the window. Lisa started to cry. Gavin looked like he might cry as well. Can you let me sit with you? It's raining. Lisa opened the window a crack and said, Check yourself for those bugs. I don't want to let you in. They might be on you. Well, he said, they might just as easily be on you. Lisa shrieked and bolted out of the car and into the rain, slapping and brushing herself wildly, stomping and dancing around like a toddler in meltdown. Gavin proceeded to check himself over methodically, then rooted around in Lisa's car to see if any of his husband had made it into the Prius. It's fine, he yelled to Lisa. You can come back now and I'll check you too. She pulled herself together long enough for Gavin to look her up and down. She shivered and whimpered as he looked down her shirt and into her jeans, and she just let him. All clear, no monster pieces. Can we please get into the car now? Lisa got in. She wasn't too wet. She stared at the little red hula devil. Gavin came around and got in on the other side, banging the door shut too hard. As long as she'd known him, he slammed car doors shut behind him. The familiarity brought Lisa a little comfort. She said, I'm sorry, I came by unannounced. I'm sure he's sorry too, Gavin said. James? Lisa asked, turning to him. What? No, my husband. Lisa's straight dark hair stuck to the sides of her face. We thought he wasn't real. How can you marry some someone who doesn't have a name? Is that even legal? Gavin took off his glasses, misted with the light Cascadian rain and the grease of his skin, and he rubbed them with his blue and white striped polo shirt. Lisa noticed he'd switched from black frames to tortoise shell. He said, we're married under monster law. It's different than human law. More physics than legalese. I ate a piece of him. It was consensual, and now we're married. Lisa started picking through her clothes again. You ate him? Part of him. It grew back. Lisa blocked out the visual organ of her imagination and ran her hands over her body. Are you absolutely sure that none of those little crawly things got onto me or in the car? Gavin smiled again more sweetly this time. I'm sure. They don't like to be on people. They get on me all the time, and they're far more afraid of me than I am of them. Sometimes I wake up and they're, Enough! Lisa said. Gavin put his glasses back on. Gavin sat quietly for a moment and then said, I want you two to come over for dinner. You and James, I mean. Hubby will be there already. She flicked her head to face him. Like, at the table? The four of us? Gavin rolled his eyes and said, Yes, Lisa, at the table. Hubby and I eat at the table like normal people. Jesus, you're so fucking snooty sometimes. I'm sorry, it's just, when you said you were married to a monster, I didn't, I had no idea. I mean, the tentacle, the bugs. Come inside and meet him. Gavin bopped the little red hula devil on the head. I swear that hubby is harmless. You're a hundred times more likely to die from cancer or drunk drivers than you are to get hurt by him. Please, come inside. Lisa panted and pumped the handles on the elliptical machine in the bonus room. James did crunches on the floor next to her. It's not like a dinosaur or a werewolf or anything like that. It belongs to, like, different physics. She paused to catch her breath again. I don't get it, but Gavin is completely in love with this thing. I guess it's male. Gavin wouldn't tell me about anything private. Maybe they don't... She took a swig from her Fiji water. God. James continued bobbing in and out of her peripheral vision. James, are you listening? He grunted, yes. Lisa blew out a deep breath and halted her movements, then began working the foot pedals in reverse, hands still on the handles. James paused on the floor and said, well, if that's Gavin's husband, we need to be accepting. Remember when your sister brought that girl in the wheelchair to Thanksgiving? Lisa continued her reverse momentum and didn't look over. Candace, you're comparing her to that thing in Gavin's house? It doesn't even have a face. Jesus, James. He lifted himself up on his elbows. That's not what I meant. You can't even call Gavin's husband he. You keep calling him it or that thing. Lisa said nothing. James continued. How do you think that's going to make Gavin feel when you accidentally or even intentionally call his husband it? Lisa didn't say anything. She started bobbing on the machine again in forward rotations. Her heartbeat contact registered 162. The four of them sat in the living room, a well-appointed affair that doubled as a library. The fireplace crackled. Lisa still wondered where all this money came from. From Monsterland, she thought. From Transylvania. A polished slice of old-growth pine served as a coffee table, 
its rings showing in the cross-section. Stemless wine glasses rested on blue and green geode coasters. They looked like sunless planets orbiting along the tracks of the tree's rings. When James complimented the rustic and organic table, Gavin said he loved it because it's not trying to hide its nature. It's a dead and beautiful thing. James hadn't even flinched, and Lisa wished she had his composure. The husband sat in his person suit while Gavin spoke for both of them. He looked almost human. It was the skin that really gave him away. A little waxy, like a Madame Tussauds. And the eyes. The eyes were undeniably alive, very human, but a little too wide. Sunrise eyes, like a mugshot, staring at her while Gavin went on and on. In waist-deep and swamp water, shifting around doing the no-gator, no-moccasin dance, which, by the way, doesn't work. It's just to make us feel safe when we aren't. And I'm looking at this poor little five-legged frog, and I hear this humming noise behind me. Gavin put his hand on the husband's knee. The husband looked down at it, and then he smiled in a separate act. That's what he reminded her of. Johnny Depp as Edward Scissorhands. That stiffness, that constant state of alert as he tried to learn about being human. Once she made the association, she could finally begin to relax. The person suit did help, even though it seemed worse at first. The hair was too neat, like a Mormon missionary, but the flickers of firelight softened his edges. Lisa hoped he would still look that soft, that real, at the dinner table. Gavin continued the mute-cute story. I turned around and there he was. Three of them, actually. The other two were from his nest family. His parents? James asked, plucking a fistful of roasted almonds from a glass bowl on the table and depositing them into a cocktail napkin. The husband slowly tilted his head to the side. Gavin answered, No, it's sort of like siblings, but not like we have. Have you heard of reproductive fragmentation? He doesn't have parents, per se. Lisa crunched her own mouthful of almonds slowly. She began coughing on a smithereen and grabbed her wine glass. She drained it. The husband watched her. When she saw him staring at her through the emptied glass, she tilted it down and forced a smile at him. He forced a smile back. He looked more like a child than an automaton now. She did like his suit, the actual clothing suit, a surprisingly dapper number over the person suit. Maybe the two sets came together attached. She imagined the slim, plum tie stitched into the crisp, powder-blue collar, the waxy fake skin attached to it from underneath. It had to be fake, didn't it? Gavin set his wine glass down with an enthusiastic knock. I think it's dinner time. Hubby, would you show them to the table while I plate the food? The husband stood up and gestured for them to follow, leading them to a sparsely set glass and steel dining table. No centerpiece. Lisa thanked God there were no taxidermied mice holding place cards. The husband stood at the foot of the table and motioned James and Lisa to sit as well. He left the room and came back with the new wine bottle. He maintained intense eye contact with Lisa as he came around the table and held the bottle to her for inspection. She didn't recognize the brand. It was a Merlot with a label written in a language she didn't recognize. German? As she squinted at it, James said, I think he just wants your approval, Lisa. Oh, she said and glanced back up at him. The husband looked as freaked out as she felt. It's perfect, she said. I love Merlot. I've heard Germans make great Merlot. The husband looked relieved. He poured her a glass. She assumed the already uncorked bottle had been breathing for the last few minutes. Don't get paranoid, she thought. It's just wine. It's Dutch, actually, Gavin said, coming in with two plates of steaming food. Dinner was a rabid Hassenpfeffer with dripping wilted kale and smashed potatoes. Not to be confused with Deutsch. <laughs> we had it on our honeymoon in Amsterdam. Oh? Lisa chirped. She turned to Gavin's husband, who had seated himself at the foot of the table. Or maybe it was the head. She asked, How was your trip? The husband smiled and nodded gracefully. He raised a hand and, with great purpose, spread his five, mercifully five, fingers, and then joined the tips of his index finger and thumb in a gesture of approval. His eyes still gaped. Gavin placed a plate in front of James, and James asked, Did you wear the person suit in Amsterdam, or did you go en natural? The husband mouthed the words, en natural, but no sound came from him. His lips and tongue worked dramatically around the syllables. Natural, honey, said Gavin, placing another plate in front of Lisa. She inhaled the sweet and spicy fragrance and smacked her lips. The first round of wine was working. Gavin continued. No, he just went around normally. The Dutch are very accepting that way. Lots of interracial couples. The person suit is new. He got it so guests wouldn't be so uncomfortable after last time. He's practicing passing for human. Gavin disappeared back into the kitchen. Lisa felt stiff again. She didn't look at the husband, but she said, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be such a bad guest last time. It was totally my fault. 
She impressed herself with the unrehearsed apology. She looked at James. He gave her a wink. The husband made a sound then. It wasn't like the metal-on-metal sound she heard the first day. It was a clicking like the bats made when they swooped down to catch the mosquitoes over the swimming pool. She looked over to her husband and he nodded again. His eyes had softened. Gavin came back with one more plate and a gravy boat. Okay, here we go. Honey, would you like to say grace? Lisa shot her eyes over to James. He raised his eyebrows but gave a slight nod. The husband, no plate in front of him, tilted his head back and held up his hands as though receiving a blessing directly from God. He opened his mouth and a gorgeous music came out. Not like singing, but like heartstrings vibrating against wind chimes. Lisa wanted it to keep going, but it was over in a few seconds. The husband recomposed himself and stared directly toward Gavin with a look that could pass for infatuation. I love when hubby does that. It might be the moment I really fell in love with him, the first time I heard him do that. The three humans dug in. James wiggled in his seat and said, Mmm, Gavin, I didn't know you could cook. This is awesome. Gavin swirled his wine in his glass. Thanks, James. I've had some time on my hands, decided to learn cooking. Lisa kept looking at her plate, but asked, Is he... are you on a special diet? The husband made a sound that could have been a laugh. Lisa didn't look up. He doesn't eat meat, Gavin said, and he can't digest herbs like these. Garlic could kill him. Like a vampire, James interjected. Lisa prodded his shin under the table and he scrunched up his face as if to say, Get off my case. Gavin laughed and said, Yeah, kinda. I mean, those legends don't come from nowhere. Hubby is indigenous American, though, not Slavic. His tribe never settled anywhere outside of Florida and the Antilles. They've lived in the Florida Everglades for a million years. I mean, literally a million years. They stay hidden, though. The land development of Florida has really pushed them to the margins. Gavin forked a generous bite of rabbit into his mouth. Lisa looked from Gavin to his husband. I didn't realize you were Native American. I'm part Duwamish myself, but we split from the tribe a couple of generations ago. It's hard. It's a hard thing that's happened in our country. At least you're well off, right? She gestured around the spacious dining room. You can probably help your people out. Is there a nonprofit for your tribe? She looked to Gavin. He frowned. She looked back to the monster husband. His eyes looked as though they might burst. His hands resting on the table balled into fists. The skin, or whatever it was, on one of the hands did burst. It split, and a mass of black and scarlet tendrils spilled out. They slithered and swayed around, and Lisa clapped her hand over her mouth to keep from screaming. Honey, Gavin said. The monster husband tilted his head back again, like when he sang that ecstatic prayer. The sound this time was that scraping steel groan and shriek of anger. Lisa and James both put their hands over their ears. Lisa prayed to St. Michael that he wouldn't break apart into a million crawlies again. Gavin wiped his mouth with calm reservation. Calm the fuck down, honey. It's not a big deal. This is why people are afraid of you. Gavin looked to Lisa and then James. I'm sorry, he's totally harmless. He just gets mad about these things. The monster husband stood up so briskly that he knocked his chair backward. It smacked against the tile floor. He crouched in a strange pose and dashed with inhuman speed out of the room. Through the ceiling, Lisa heard something ambulate across the second-story floor. She bent her head and prayed. She hoped that the thing was at the whim of gravity and couldn't crawl across the actual ceiling. I'm so sorry, Gavin said and got up from the table. He isn't usually like this. I think he's also cranky and needs to eat. We'll be right back. I will, at least. Gavin walked toward the stairs in the next room. As he exited, he paused. In the future, please don't talk politics or social justice with hubby. Monsters don't understand these things. It's politics that ruined his homeland. Asking him about nonprofits is like asking an elephant if he approves of fake ivory. With that, Gavin left the room. Lisa and James sat there, neither looking at the other. Eventually, James began eating again, heaping piles of smashed potatoes into his mouth, stripping the meat from the rabbit bone. Lisa continued eating as well. What else was there to do? She hadn't told James yet, but she felt sure a baby had begun to grow inside her. Maybe the monster could smell it. James sipped his wine and hiccuped. Oh, this isn't the worst thing we imagined. <laughs> Just a little misunderstanding. Lisa began to pick at the food again. Do you think they're monogamous? James banged his wine down on the table, glass on glass. Lisa flinched, expecting something to break. Christ, Lisa, let it go, whatever your perverted fascination is with their sex life. 
James stood from his chair and grabbed the wine bottle. He filled her glass and his own. Or better yet, why don't you just ask Gavin? I don't want to ask. I feel like I've committed enough faux pas already. Yeah, I think you have. James looked into his wine glass. Lisa folded her hands in her lap, but she kept pressing. Anything weird happened when you came to drop off the chainsaw? James didn't look at her. He didn't answer for a long moment, but then he said, I don't like what you're hinting at. All week you've been tiptoeing around something. We were kids back then. It was just college stuff. You know I only want to be with you. What? Lisa looked at her husband. Me and Gavin, that one time. Then I met you and I haven't been with anyone since. You don't think I still want to fuck Gavin, do you? Because even if I did, you may have noticed that I'm not his type. Whoa. She raked her fingers through her black hair. I wasn't talking about that at all. I think, I mean, I might. Never mind. James got an oh shit look on his face and changed the subject. I think we should go up there and check on them. Lisa pressed her hands flat on the glass table and shook her head. No, don't you leave me alone in this house. She withdrew her hands. Full prints, all ten fingers, marred the sparkle of the glass tabletop. James raised one eyebrow. Are you absolutely sure? You're not afraid? Fuck you, James. Of course I'm afraid. But what else can I do? The thing is either going to kill me and eat me, or it isn't. Let's go. She threw her napkin against the table and stood. As they climbed the stairs, the wood creaked beneath them. She paused, but James kept going. Of course he did. It wasn't like they were sneaking, but she felt like she was in a haunted house. She didn't know whether she was the specter or the victim. They hadn't been given a grand tour of the second story. At the top of the stairs, several closed doors awaited. No telling which room they'd be in. Only the light from downstairs, that mix of wood fire and electric fire, sketched out the upper hallway. They paused and listened. James cocked his head to the left, then moved to a door and tapped on it. I think they're in here, he said softly. No answer came. He tapped again. The door slipped his latch this time and groaned open. Whoa, James stared in. What, is everything okay? Lisa whispered without knowing why she whispered. Um, you can come look if you want. Person suit is hanging up on a rack in this room. I guess he took it off. Lisa shuddered. She tiptoed quickly to her husband and wrapped both of her arms around one of his, but she didn't look in. The two of them walked to the next door. She could hear the voices now, Gavin soothing his husband. The husband's, too, the harp string and wind chime sound. If he could always make those noises, maybe Lisa could feel okay around him. Faint violet light came from under the door in pulses. She could only now see it now that she was nearly against the door. James rapped on the door with his knuckle. Gav, you do okay? There was a shuffling noise in there. Yeah, give me a minute. James looked to Lisa. She stretched her neck and lifted her lips to his. His kiss emboldened her, and then, without thinking, she opened the door. Gavin shouted, Wait, give me another! But the door was swinging. The violet light turned red and brightened, the pulsation quickening. It brightened enough for them to see... something. Something in the otherwise unlit room, illuminated now in stoplight red, the bioluminescence flaring from little organs around the circumference of the husband's body. The husband also pulsed like a giant heart, beating faster in a flush of embarrassment. Gavin was naked. At least the visible top half of him was naked. He was standing, buried up to the ribs in the body of his husband, in some kind of orifice at the top, the top of its body. In Gavin's hand, he grasped one of many tendrils that grew like vines from the husband's corpus. The end of the tube flagellated around, then inserted itself into his mouth, completing some inexplicable circuit. Lisa screamed and ran down, down the stairs and out the front door. The two human men shouted after her to stop, to come back. Maybe the monster shouted, too. That was Evan J. Peterson's The Husband's Suit, as read by Tina Kolakowski. Tina Kolakowski lives in a suburb of Denver with her husband, three children, two dogs, and five chickens. She is a research scientist by day and divides her free time between all of her dependent life forms, the garden, writing, crafting, and recording. 
she has previously done narrations for the Dune Steef audio fiction magazine, Rish Outcast, and Journeys into Podcasts. Her infrequent writing can be found on Tina's Jar of Awesome.blogspot.com. Thank you, Tina. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we twist your mind with more Tales to Terrify. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.